Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So this week, I actually know what we're going to talk about because you sent me a paper ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And um, I read through the entire paper. It was actually, mm-hmm. it was really readable. It was really well done. I was thinking this is this is a really well done paper. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. reading through mm-hmm. and I, I got to the end and I, I saw the author and I actually recognized the author's name, which is funny because I'm not, I, I don't live in the data science world. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to guess it. Well, wait, you sent me the paper. So I guess you, anyway, <laughs> I guarantee if you have listened to this podcast, you know this person. And I will tell you in a second, you are listening to Linear Digressions. I don't think you're fooling anyone at this point, Ben. <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple you're not people. Not even a little bit sneaky. Who, who wrote the paper? Uh, yours truly. Uh, I wrote, this is a, a white paper that I put together not too long ago uh, about doing data science in kind of like big professional teams and organizations and what thought is, it was interesting and wanted to talk about it. <laughs> what is a white paper? So it's a paper that I put together or, you know, whoever, whoever the author is, uh, in this case, me, um, I put together to communicate a set of ideas, but it's not like peer reviewed. This isn't like a, Uh, uh, you know, a journal paper or anything like that. So kind of uh, a bit more off the cuff, but more formal than off the cuff. So I guess not off the cuff. But yeah, I I mean, I think it would. Right. I think it's marginally more formal than a blog post maybe like a well put together blog post um but you know people may disagree um i gotta say also it's a pdf and it is pretty oh well thank you i will pass that along to our designer so this was some work i did in the course of my job at uh at civis um because we have been thinking a lot about how to do data science better. This is something that we do a lot with our clients because we do like data science consulting and things like that and wanted to put down some of the things that we had thought were most uh, salient about teams that we saw that were really effective at bringing data science to their organizations. Uh, So anyway, um, our designers there worked pretty hard to make it look real nice and they did a great job. And I guess as an aside to all of this, we'll go through the paper a little bit and talk about some of the points. But as ever, you can get a link on LinearDigressions.com. It's going to ask you to put in your email at the link just because it's like a gated content thing. So uh, bear with us on that. But uh, you can actually like get the paper and download it and read it and whatnot. But for now, we can just talk about what's in there. Yeah, definitely. Um... It seems like this white paper is geared towards someone uh, or a team of data scientists who maybe have got along fine with their maybe more improvised methods or uh, ad hoc put together processes, but maybe they're ready to kind of uh, pull things together and get a little bit more formal with their process to improve their productivity. Yeah, this is something that we see a lot and I've been thinking a lot about as Civis has been growing. Like, how do we formalize some of our data science processes? So this isn't this isn't starting out advice. Uh, this isn't the first thing that you would think to do if you're starting a data science team from scratch. But it's something that we see pretty often where there's a team that, that gets started and makes some progress 
but isn't having as big of an impact as they would like to have or uh, very often as like the leadership of the company wants them to have Um, because there's just like technical barriers or like social barriers, institutional cultural barriers that are still in place even though the data scientists are very smart and they're very good at their jobs, there's just like walls that you can run up against. And so trying to articulate what are some of the ones that we see very often and what are some of the more effective ways of trying to dismantle them so that the data scientists are actually having a big impact within the organization and that you know everybody is recognizing how important their work is and is using it to make better decisions and all this kind of stuff. So it takes a certain level of maturity to even have that type of problem. Um, so that's why I say it's not starting out advice. This is kind of the stuff that you hit after you've picked the lowest hanging fruit. But mm-hmm. it can be pretty hard, I think, to hit these walls because y- you think you're doing fine, right? Like usually right. getting started, you like, okay, I'm going to get this up and running. I'm going to get some like some data. I'm going to solve a problem. And it feels like you're making a lot of progress. And so it can be particularly discouraging or it's a different set of problems that you have to solve to continue to like grow that out. A couple thoughts on this. Um, As a software developer, uh, I have gone through and have seen teams go through a very similar process uh, as this one. So this paper is specifically focused on uh, data science, but a lot of kind of the core components of this white paper apply to a lot of different industries, including computer science. (laughs) Well, and I actually think that's an interesting comparison because we sort of talking amongst ourselves, uh, me and some of my colleagues, we're looking at computer science and software engineering as an interesting case study of sort of a field that's gone through a a transition here already where Hmm. a couple decades ago, uh, computer scientists and software engineers, people didn't really know what to do with them. They were doing some work, but it wasn't really changing the way that organizations were like doing their day-to-day business. Like there wasn't this revolution that had happened yet. Um, and so then a lot of things happened to make that change. I think we would all agree that software engineers are writing tools that kind of underpin everybody's daily lives. Um, but one of the things that changed is, uh, practices around software engineering changed and attitudes of software engineers themselves and the way that they thought about their work and its relationship to the organization. And so trying to think through what might be an analog to that for data scientists, like is there a similar transition of data scientists that as the field becomes more mature, people hold themselves to a higher standard and start to think about what they're building in a different way is kind of an interesting way that we've been chewing on it. So I think that the parallels there are are pretty striking and interesting. Uh, there's one more thing I actually want to. I mean, we should we should dive into the paper, right? <laughs> We've just been jabbering on for a while. Yeah, nine um, minute intro here, yeah. But I do want to uh, just raise a point, which I think is um, kind of a, a consistent thread throughout this paper and, and all papers like it for other industries, is that the problems that uh, that that you see solutions uh, posed for are problems that unless you know that they're there, they can actually be quite invisible. Like they're problems where if you're a single software developer or data scientist, or you're maybe on a team of people who are relatively new to the industry, 
um, you can very easily have all of these problems, but not even realize that you have them because you haven't experienced um, something different. Oh, that's interesting. You'll have to unpack that a little bit as we go, because, yeah. well, I might not be in a best position to really say much about this because, you know, I'm privileged, I think, to work with usually pretty high class organizations um, that that do have these problems, right? Like they're in the fortunate position of having to deal with this stuff in some ways. Um, so I would be interested to hear, you know, specific thoughts that you have about that as we go through it. Yeah, definitely. I, I think uh, actually I didn't, and just for some history, because I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I didn't st start as a software developer. I actually started as a teacher and I, I got into software development by learning software development and then teaching it. And so um, I, I have a good amount of experience thinking of things that maybe we all take for granted, trying to think of them at least. Uh, with beginner's mind. So um, yeah, I'll, yeah, let's, uh, let's dive into the first point, I guess. And we'll go from there. Sounds good. So I don't actually have it open in front of me, you'll have to prompt me here. All right. <laughs> so point number one is discoverability. It says data analysis results should be discoverable by the organization. Oh, sure. This is a big one. Um, so discoverability is kind of like an overloaded term. But the general idea is that people can find your work if you're a data scientist, as you know, a 25 cent word for people can find your stuff. Um, this is surprisingly, this isn't a thing that just happens uh, naturally. You have to put some effort into making sure that your stuff is visible. So, well, Katie, yes. uh, as if I were a non-technical person, uh, maybe in a startup or something like that, my version of finding the data scientist stuff would be walking up to the data scientist's desk and saying, hey, can you pull these numbers for me? Totally, exactly. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, data science teams who, you know, start out and they build some useful stuff and then actually have this curse where then they spend all their time fielding requests from across the organization, like, hey, can you run these numbers for me? And mm -hmm. this, you know, there are a few different ways that you need to address that. But one of the ways, like, so we'll maybe even get into that a little bit more in some of the later points, but for discoverability, it's even a problem that happens before that, which is that do you even know that the data scientists maybe have solved this problem or are thinking about this problem? Mm. And if they have, do you know where to go find that result? So hopefully it's a little bit easier than just going over and bothering them. Um, I personally am a big fan of doing stuff like once you build out a workflow or a model, uh, put it in something like deploy it as like an API or put it in some kind of web app that people across the organization can use and access or like a dashboard. Uh, so Dashboards think of, are wonderful. Yeah, think of it as like almost a, a thing that you have to publish or it's like a little product that people have to like know about. And so making sure that that gets well well socialized and that things are in a place where they're easy to find wherever it is people in your company go to look for stuff uh, make sure that it's easy to find through those routes so this looks a little bit different in every organization I think it's a little bit hard for me to say very specifically what this should be but in general if something is discoverable then it means that again people across the organization can find it when they're looking for it right uh, at a previous company I saw the uh, the lone data scientist 
always pulling numbers for the execs who were doing uh, pitch decks and stuff like that. Yep. Um, and I, I remember there was this moment where it it became apparent that oh, actually, maybe there actually is a better way. Like it, it was kind of interesting. Like as soon as you see it, you're like, oh, of course. Uh, I'll just I'll run the numbers and I'll I'll put them up in a place where everyone can access them without bothering me, and then I can keep doing my actual work rather than uh, you know manually creating these these reports on a on-demand basis. Um, but sometimes that can be an invisible thing. That can be a thing where you think, okay, well I I want to do this stuff, but I can't because I've got to do this stuff. Uh, and you don't realize, oh maybe there's a world in which I can make it so I don't have to do this this uh busy work stuff well yeah and again we'll get into other pieces of this in some of the later points but yeah i think it's all about like once you've solved the problem you should move on (laughs) right you should set it up so that it just sits there and continues to solve itself and you can you as the data scientist can move on to other things but again these are things that don't happen by themselves you have to put in extra effort so this is this is kind of going above and beyond like the data wrangling and the modeling. It's thinking about the next step after that. How do I put this into a place where people can use it? So, I've got one last thought on this before we move on, uh, which is there can actually be a resistance to uh, implementing uh, some form of discoverability because if you are the only data scientist and you're getting paid decently in a startup, as an example, um, in a way, you have job security. In a way, the fact that someone can come to you and, and uh, or rather, the, the fact that someone has no choice but to come to you specifically, uh, in a way, it actually feels good, you know? Um, and this goes for data scientists, this goes for uh, specialists uh, in engineering, or probably a ton of other, um, of other situations. Uh, but it's that's another interesting and odd thing that I've seen uh, play out where there's this resistance to change because you feel like you are um, uh, indispensable uh, because you're the sole source of this data. Whereas the reality is if you, if you publish this data, you would still be indispensable because you're the only one who knows uh, how to get new data, right? And assuming that you are, this is a big assumption, assuming that... Uh, whoever is running your organization values uh, you as a data scientist and sees that given more time, you will perhaps produce more insights. Um, assuming that that's true, then, you know, that's kind of a, a fallacious a fallacious thing to not implement some sort of discoverability uh, because of that resistance. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes we talk to, we talk to a lot of data scientists in the course of consulting, but we also talk to their bosses and their bosses bosses I think I understand the logic of what you're saying I think it's not a great logic uh from the perspective sometimes the decision makers in these organizations oh like, yeah definitely you know they don't love it <laughs> so uh it does have in the short term uh I totally get it I think in the long term that's usually not good for the data science team if uh yeah if their boss the org. feels like they're yeah like they're not getting uh they're not making good use of their time but um anyway yeah it's it's tricky um this is this stuff is not easy yeah so um so you've got 
you've got discoverability, uh, let's say in the form of some dashboard or, or something like that, or an API, uh, and now you are running your queries every week to update the dashboard. Well, it turns out maybe you could go for some automation. Uh, yeah, so this is another big part of it. <laughs> another way of saying, once you've solved it, don't continue to sit there solving it, right? Just automate it. So the simplest example of this would be like a cron job, which is just a way that you can run a script on a schedule basically. So set up your workflow to have a bunch of interconnecting pieces and then have a on like a schedule, it gets kicked off. This starts to get a little bit more challenging for the more complex workflows. And usually these teams that we're thinking about, they are pretty complex workflows. They might have many different data sources, lots of pre-processing. There's places where things can fail stochastically. So this is, I'll acknowledge upfront that this is easier said than done. But the ideal is that most of the time the system is ideally running itself and the data scientist is there to check the output to do some monitoring to occasionally fix it when things break but is spending most of their time off building new things instead of maintaining old things so that's the spirit of of automation oh and i want to say one other thing about this actually that i think is really valuable for automation the thing that's nice about automation is it means that your results can be updated regularly and that's really important because the world changes and you want things to update as the world changes because that means that then people across the organization have confidence that the information that they're getting is up to date and it's recent and it's the most relevant and so this is an important thing also for kind of social buy-in and cultural buy-in mm -hmm. is that the people that you're pushing these results to aren't sitting there questioning them because they know that they're old and stale they know that they're uh, usually pretty up to date. So that's, it's not just about making your life easier, but it's about kind of instilling trust with your colleagues who aren't themselves data scientists. Yeah, I love that idea. That's kind of a part of the meat space problem that often gets avoided, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so the next bullet in this white paper is collaboration. Yeah, this is all about teamwork. Uh, data science more and more is a team sport. So trust exercises. Yeah, uh, trust falls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <so> right. <laughs> yeah, and this is this is a place where we're taking a, a strong page from the software engineering practices, software development, where there's tools like Git uh, for version control and for collaboration, and there's also good tools sometimes for even things as simple as like pair programming, right? That you have multiple people from across your team who can be, let's say, simultaneously looking at the same code, who can be sharing their code, who can be building things together. Um, and this is kind of a, you know, the technical choices that you make as a team can sometimes make this really easy or really hard. It's a little bit harder for data scientists to collaborate than for software engineers because data scientists don't just have their code, they also have the data. And so, being able to like fully collaborate on all of that can sometimes be a little bit more involved because you have to potentially be like sharing data sets and that gets into data versioning issues. And we talked about this in a recent episode. So go back for more on that. Um, right. But I think there's a lot of good standards here from software engineering, which has figured out how to build software as a team sport and that data scientists should 
you know, they put a lot of effort into assembling these great teams and having tools and practices that enable those teams to work together is just very, very clearly, in my opinion, what those teams should be doing. Right. I want to uh, just quickly run down the bullet points here. Uh, one is what you already mentioned, all code gets goes into Git and uh, you use platforms like GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket. And it says if it's not in Git, it doesn't exist. And I really like that. Uh, that's just a couple words, but it kind of sums up the mentality that you want to create if because you need everyone to buy in. Otherwise, it doesn't really fully work. Uh, You've also got everyone lints their code using the same linting standard. Uh, linting, aside from what you find when you take off your socks, <laughs> is a word for ensuring that everybody uses the same code styles. So do you put semicolons after your lines of code or do you not? Uh, do you indent using two spaces or four spaces or tabs or whatever? Um, and like on a one-on-one -on -one basis, this stuff does not matter at all. But if you have a bunch of people contributing and the code is in a bunch of different styles it actually becomes uh, very difficult to read and there's a, a lot of context switching in in your brain um, all code gets documented including function docs strings and comments uh, that's a big one new code is developed in branches or in forks and git not in the production branch and this kind of gets to uh, what you were just talking about in terms of collaboration so if i'm part of uh, a 20 person team, I shouldn't just take the code that I wrote and commit it right into uh, what you might call master or the, the production branch. Because there might be conflicts with my code and someone else's code. Uh, and so instead, you might want to have a development branch where you kind of suss out any conflicts that might arise. And then eventually you can um, move these things over to the production branch. Uh, and along those lines, all code should be tested. So use a continuous integration tool like Travis or Circle to run the tests automatically. Again, there's that that um, that word automation. Um, and all of these things, um, yeah, every single one of these things are things that um, that I and my team do at Facebook. Uh, so it's applicable across a lot of different industries. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's a different way of thinking about sometimes what data science is about you know it's not the general theme here is you're not just responsible for pushing out single numbers or single analyses but it's almost thinking about data science workflows as products uh, for the organization and that data scientists are product managers so doing things like being responsible for making sure that if there's experiments or new features or something like that, that those are partitioned away from from the stuff that people are relying on and depending on, making sure that when you introduce new adaptations to your workflow, that it doesn't break it by using things like tests. So again, borrowed very heavily from software engineering and, and that's not entirely by accident. So the next bullet is empowerment. Yeah, yeah, a, a little bit of a fancy word here again. Um, but the general idea is that data scientists come from a lot of different backgrounds and tend to be uh, very smart and capable in different technical fields and with different tools. And so as much as possible, this is speaking a little bit more to like the tech stack that data scientists work with, as much as possible trying to pick a stack that guides them toward using best practices, but doesn't 
hem people in or minimizes mm-hmm. how much they hem them in. So this is, uh, you know, where all other things are equal, try to use open source tools, uh, try to use things that are fairly well maintained. Oh, be uh, judicious in the adoption of new frameworks and languages. So there's kind of a, a bad habit that some of us have sometimes of like, oh, I want to learn this new thing. So what I'm going to do is write a new tool. Like I want to learn a new <laughs> language, let's say like, so I'm going to yeah. write the new tool in the language and it's going to force me to learn it. Like very often this can end up biting you because you have this really important tool in this language that you don't really understand and that nobody well, else understands. Also, and yeah, your whole team needs to Yeah, to your team needs to understand it. it. Like you probably didn't write it that well because you didn't understand the language when you wrote it. Um, yeah. So it's it's generally trying to not be your own worst enemy in your own tech stack choices, uh, which sounds yeah. really obvious, but it, it's surprising how hard this can sometimes be in practice. You know, it, it also almost seems like uh, another another word that could apply to this empowerment section is ownership, um, where I'm like just kind of reading some of these um Spend time being a skeptic of your own logic before making big technical decisions. Be diligent in how you store access and keep track of data. Be thoughtful and disciplined about the interfaces between major pieces of your stack. And don't be afraid of building out more complex architecture, but budget time for refactors to keep it from becoming spaghetti code. Um, if you hire a junior junior engineer, that person might not do that out of the box, you know, coming right out of university or right out of a, a coding boot camp or wherever they come from. Um, but as as you would consider yourself as an engineer or data scientist as more seasoned, uh, a big part of that is having um, ownership not only over your own code, uh, but also the big picture. So you are defending your code bases against um, the newest and shiniest framework that everyone's going to forget about in two months you know uh you are defending yourself or your your um team and your and your stack against well really all of the pitfalls i just mentioned yeah we have kind of a internal phrase for this and i i think it's something that we say in the white paper once or twice that we think of this as being disciplined as a data scientist so knowing when you need to do the not very fun work of like refactoring code it's kind of like eating your vegetables knowing when you have to forego a second piece of dessert, like a new coding <laughs> framework that like might sound really fun, um, but isn't actually going to serve you in the long run. And this just takes, this takes some experience and some judgment and it's a little bit hard to get right away. Uh, you kind of have to make a few of these mistakes before you really know it. But very often in teams, you're working with people who are more experienced than you. So this is a place where, the teamwork and collaboration can really help you out that you can learn from the mistakes of others. There's one more that we should cover uh, in this white paper, and it that is deployment. Yeah, so this is another way of, again, thinking about the idea that data scientists are product managers of a sort. Um, and so one of the things about products is that uh, ideally, uh, if you're building a product, it has users who are depending on it. And it might still be under development, you might still be building stuff for it, but that you should take fairly seriously the fact that people are relying on it. And that's what I mean by something being in deployment, um, is that there's a set of expectations around its reliability and its accuracy. And so thinking about your work that way 
forces a uh, a certain set of discipline, uh, you know, on you as a data scientist. But the trade-off is that people trust your work and they know they can rely on it. And they know that it's, you know, you put a lot of work into making it high quality. And so thinking again about the users and the people across the organization who will be relying on your, the things that you build, encapsulating that all in like a single word is, you know, probably the word that I would use is deployment. Awesome. Um, if you're starting out, once again, maybe not the best white paper for you, but I, I still think it's worth the like, skim. Yeah, it's, like, I think it's it's interesting to read about uh, problems that lie ahead of you, I think. But, yeah. you know, it, it'll probably resonate a little bit more with people who've been doing this for a little while. But yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, data science as a field is maturing a little bit. So I think there's many more of those people than there were even just a couple of years ago. Awesome. So you can find the link at lineardigressions.com as always. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for writing a white paper for us to chat about, Katie. Oh, my pleasure. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to lineardigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.